Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On March 26th, the United States Department of Justice did something very unusual. In a press conference in which Attorney General William Barr was flanked by top national security officials, the Attorney General unsealed indictments against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and top regime officials, alleging drug trafficking and narco-terrorism. I say this is unusual because it is just very rare for the Department of Justice to indict a sitting foreign head of state. But in this case, the United States does not consider Maduro to be the legitimate Venezuelan head of state. Rather, since January 2019, the United States and several other countries around the world, including key allies in Europe and Latin America, have backed Juan Guaido, who was the leader of Venezuela's opposition-controlled parliament. But when the Trump administration declared Maduro to be an illegitimate leader and threw its weight behind Juan Guaido, it did so on the assumption that such a mood would inspire defections among regime loyalists, particularly in the military and security services. That assumption was proven incorrect. So now Venezuela is in the position of having two rival governments, with Maduro still in control of most state institutions and Juan Guaido backed by most Western powers. So that was essentially the status quo in late March. And the decision to unseal these criminal indictments against Maduro and his top regime officials could be interpreted as an attempt by the United States to further ratchet up pressure against the Maduro regime. On the line with me to discuss this all is Keith Mines, Senior Advisor for Venezuela and Colombia at the United States Institute of Peace. We kick off discussing the indictments and how they fit into U.S. policy toward Venezuela before having a broader conversation of whether or not this move may succeed in helping to dislodge Maduro from power. We also discuss how COVID-19 is impacting domestic politics in Venezuela and what role the United Nations might play in helping mediate a resolution to this crisis. Uh, Just a couple things before we start. First, just a huge thank you to everyone who has been writing to me over recent weeks. You know, I I know this is a tough time for many people being stuck at home, possibly out of work. I've actually heard from a lot of Peace Corps volunteers who are home and now jobless. Uh, If there's anything on your mind, please do feel free to reach out to me. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I read all your emails. I'll respond to all your emails. If you want to vent or you just want to say hi, I am here for you. Please do feel free to reach out. Uh, Also, the bonus episode that I am posting is my conversation with epidemiologist Larry Brilliant. 
He was a central player in the global smallpox eradication initiative and just has an absolutely fascinating life story as a kind of young hippie doctor who drove a car all the way from Europe to India in the 1960s and subsequently helped change the world. To unlock that episode and dozens of my other episodes, also to access my daily global news clip service, you can become a premium subscriber by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches or just clicking on the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Keith Mines of the United States Institute of Peace. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So you've got indictments against uh, 14 current and former Venezuelan officials. And it starts with President Maduro. It includes Diosdado Cabello, who is one of the, the key people in the regime, of course, uh, Minister of Defense, Padrino Lopez, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So the bulk of the indictments are for conspiracy to traffic drugs to the United States. And uh, basically what it it would do is to lay down a marker, uh, both on the drug trafficking charges and on the larger issue, which is what our sanctions have, U.S. sanctions have tried to do, for the last two to three years, which is closing off the U.S. banking system or any kind of U.S. involvement in uh, crimes of uh, senior Venezuelan officials. And the other part of it, of course, is to stop the source of illicit funds to the regime. That's been always a part of the the intent of, uh, of sanctions. Uh, so what is the well, – well, can I ask, like, what is the conspiracy that they're alleging in terms of you know, drug trafficking and the involvement of Maduro himself? Well, the, the specific case – and these go on for a very long time. These have been in play for years, and uh, it takes a long time to develop the cases. Um, it's something that is – the Department of Justice works on for uh, a very long time, and then when the when they're ready to – to drop the indictments, they they do so. The timing, of course, I'm not privy to. There's obviously something um, to this in terms of timing, but I don't know exactly what it is. If you look at it in context, it's actually part of, there's kind of a sandwich here. So you've got the, the first uh, shoot to drop was the indictments. Then you had a, an olive branch to the, uh, to the regime. And then you've got the movement of uh, U.S. assets into the region uh, on the counter-narcotic side. So it's a bit of a sandwich with a uh, something in the middle that's quite interesting. But it's- yeah, which we'll talk about in terms of the the outreach to the the regime, uh, which is sort of the latest and, and interesting development. But I am just sort of curious to learn, like, what specific crimes are they alleging Maduro of committing in terms of drug trafficking? 
Well, the the allegations are that there is this Cartel de los Soles, which is uh, former and current officials of the Venezuelan government, uh, military officials and, and others that have been involved in trafficking in coordination with the FARC, trafficking drugs up to the United States. So the allegation... The FARC is the Colombian uh, right, rebel sorry, group. The Colombian guerrilla group, which has since made peace with the Colombian government, but which now has dissident groups along the border and inside Venezuela. So the allegation is that drugs being produced in Colombia cross the border into Venezuela, where they are then loaded up in airstrips or onto small boats and make their way onto the United States. And that's fairly well established that 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 is happening. The scale and exactly who's involved, of course, is always up in the air, but that's something that has been going on for quite a while. And it is curious, though, as you said earlier, the the timing of the unsealing of the indictments, as you said, presumably, you know, this investigation has been going along on for a long time. There have been indictments under seal for a long time. But then the U.S. Attorney General, um, you know, at the end of March decided now was the right time to unseal these indictments. What do we know about why the U.S. government thinks this is an opportune moment? Well, there's two things in play would be my guess. And um, I I would say that on the one hand, there's a continuous ratcheting up of pressure on the Maduro regime to do two things. One is to preserve democratic space, whatever residual democratic space still exists in Venezuela, to preserve that and to allow for that to continue to function. And that's where you have uh, the last democratically elected body, the National Assembly, that still functions uh, in, in its own way, it's it's hasn't they haven't been all been arrested. They they function as a as a legislative and democratic body. You've got Juan Guaido that is still able to function. So part of it is pressure to preserve that democratic space, and the larger part is pressure to eventually allow for a free and fair democratic election. That is the the ultimate end state of uh, U.S. policy is to to see a, a free and fair election, which allows the Venezuelan people. Uh, without impediment to uh, express their voice and have a, a government that truly represents them. So that was the the assumption that the U.S. government was, uh, or the Department of Justice was operating under, presumably, or you know, the the State Department. I think the the National Security Advisor was also there for the uh, unsealing of the indictments. So there's a presentation of like a unified front from the U.S. government. Um, what impact do you think that these uh, indictments will have on you know, the you know, conflict management and the crisis in Venezuela? Well, there's always um, a, a mounting of uh, factors that lead to a democratic transition. And um, the the situation in Venezuela, I think, is no different. What I always tell Venezuelan uh, democratic actors is that these things don't tend to last forever. Uh, they do eventually have an end state. Uh, there is uh, eventually a way out, and I think that we're, you know, we're moving in that direction of things getting to a point where they they have to change. And uh, and this is the sort of thing that, in terms of adding leverage or in terms of raising the stakes, would would tend to contribute to that. It has to be balanced, and this is the other part that we mentioned a second ago. It has to be balanced with obviously a way out and a way forward, and that's I think the the harder thing. This is the kind of blunt instrument that that needs to be followed up with that harder diplomatic piece and the international piece that would then create the conditions 
uh, through which we could see uh, a way forward. And this has been all the conflicts in the region. They've all been uh, different, but they, they have this in common that eventually there comes a time when uh, the parties uh, are, are exhausted. They are, are ready to make a, a deal and, and move forward in something uh, collaborative and something that, that allows both sides enough of what they want that they can make peace and move forward. I guess to me, then it would seem like the logical, it would seem logical to me, I should say that, um, you know, unsealing an indictment against Maduro uh, might make it less likely for him to want to negotiate, right? That might, might entrench himself in power even more. It provides, you know, fewer off ramps. I mean, he has this looming indictment from, the Department of Justice hanging over his head that just can't, you know, go away. Uh, and so to me, it just seems like illogical if you're trying to provide an off-ramp for this crisis that you would unseal an indictment at this time. Yeah, I think part of probably the, the frustration on the part of many was that there had been an off-ramp allowed for for a long time, for the last several years, that, that just didn't seem of interest. And there is certainly... Um, an appeal by the opposition, by the Guaido government for more pressure. That is their, and they're the ones closest to the action. And fr- frankly, they're the ones most at risk. So they have been very interested in increasing pressure, both by the United States and by Europe. They see Europe as a key player in, in the pressure campaign as well. And, and again, in part, just to get the attention of those that are in the non-democratic space and, and trying to move them in a direction of of allowing the democratic option to to flourish. So I think everyone has been on the U.S. side and the Guaido side has been united uh, in in this campaign of increasing pressure. Uh, This is one more means of doing so. It gets uh, very personal because now it's no longer abstract and there's been sanctions which they have been able to avoid. This now puts it in the realm of something that, uh, that is just harder to avoid. Uh, it's still there's still a way out, and it's it was very clear. It's been made made very clear, and again, that was the addition of the the uh, the meat of the sandwich, if you will. If these were the two pieces of bread, the indictments, and then the the uh, the movement of these these uh, counter narcotics forces down into the region, the meat in the center of that is really what mattered, and that was an an offer of a way out, an offer of a way forward, um, from which a lot of these things could easily be cleaned up. And, and allow people a way to, uh, to still live their lives and, and not have this shadow hanging over them. And the offer that you're referring to is a proposal by the U.S. that I just saw that the EU is also endorsing uh, to basically set up some sort of transitional government. Is that right? And that includes, you know, backers of Maduro and backers of Guaido? Correct. Right. This would be a blended government in which both uh, Guaido and Maduro take a step back from power. They both relinquish power. They give it back over to the National Assembly. And the National Assembly would then choose a council of state. And that council of state would then govern the country on the way to elections. So it's a a very simple, very bold proposal. The Guaido government has actually made this proposal already once. Uh, they made this during the Barbados talks in the fall of last year. So the, the proposal, something like this, has been on the table once before. But coming from the United States, it makes it uh, very interesting 
And it kind of uh, could be a game changer and we'll see how it plays out. But it's something that certainly could uh, at least change the dynamics somewhat. The, the U.S. up until now has been kind of a it's been kind of the muscle behind the Democratic forces. But uh, this now puts it a little bit more into an active role of providing of linking its sanctions more directly to this sort of an outcome. So it's a it's a different uh, kind of an approach than the U.S. has used up until now. And, and like, how would Maduro benefit from that uh, from that proposal if you know he's again like already under indictment? If he could be you know perhaps extradited to the United States uh, any time, should he travel anywhere? Well, that you know, this is obviously a first you know a first offer. And the intent is is not even, as I read it, for the U.S. to get directly involved in the negotiations, but rather to throw this out as something, again, that, that for the first time directly links sanctions to sanctions relief to a political way forward, rather than a more abstract offer, which is what, what there was before, that once the transition has taken place, the U.S. will lift sanctions. The U.S. now has kind of offered that there's, you know, a more immediate and continuous kind of, of relief that could be could be in play. A lot of this, I mean, it depends on how the Maduro and and his and his people would read this. Would they see it as just something else that causes them to close ranks and and double down on their current uh, scenario and whether they think they can actually survive under that scenario, whether they think that that this uh, program that they're that they're in the middle of, uh, with all of its downsides of, you know, slipping oil production and the deterioration of the country's economy and infrastructure and everything else, whether that's sustainable. And if they believe it is, uh, and they're feel like they're okay, I suppose they could just try to outrun it, but it, uh, it certainly puts something new on the table. And there's obviously a lot of dynamics inside the regime that none of us are Privy to so you know you never know when there's going to be that moment uh, that, that nobody really expected when some enlightened character is going to say you know it's time to to shift the dynamic and that's what's happened in so many conflicts in the past where you know there's just been that that moment when it finally comes together and, and there's an opportunity that that works and this was I think the U.S. effort to put something formally on the table in play that could provide that uh, that way out. And uh, the other meat on, or I should say, the other slice of bread uh, encapsulating the, uh, the the meat on that sandwich you just described is this renewed, or this new naval operation in the Caribbean. Can you just sort of describe what is that naval operation and why do you think it's happening right now? Well, the the, the rationale that was ex- that was articulated officially was that in, in the midst of coronavirus, uh, that the U.S. doesn't want to allow for uh, increased criminal activity. The, the notion that there would be openings in, and while we're distracted with COVID for criminal enterprises to, uh, to move things up to the United States. And it wasn't just on the, off the coast of Venezuela, it was on the Pacific coast as well. So it was intended to be any and all drugs moving up to the United States. So it was, it was expressed as something that, that would, um, disincentivize uh, nefarious actors from seeing the COVID distraction as a way to to move their products. In real terms, of course, for Venezuela, what it does is show that there is 
again, more muscle behind this than just indictments. There is even a uh, potential military threat uh, that, that that is behind uh, this this policy, and that it's something the United States uh, is serious about. Um, so all these moves uh, are coming in the midst of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. You know, Venezuela obviously was a humanitarian crisis before COVID nineteen. What impact are you seeing right now? of COVID-19 in, in Venezuela? Well, to date, they have had um, 143 cases was what I saw on Friday. It's probably been updated a little bit, but it, it is a, it's not the crisis it is elsewhere. And there's one of two reasons for that. Uh, one reason could be that they will avoid it, largely avoid it because of their relative isolation. The other is that they're just a little bit behind, and when it hits, it's going to hit hard. And I don't honestly know which way it's going to go, but there's some indication in both directions. Uh, They haven't been connected to a lot of the places that were the the input for COVID. They they don't have a, a lot of back and forth with China, nor Europe, nor the United States. So some of the places that could have brought the disease there uh, have not. It has probably been crossing over from the from Colombia would be the the natural source because there is still a lot of movement there. And that's certainly enough. I'm, you know, I don't downplay that at all. That that is certainly enough to get it started. If it does get started, again, it will probably be catastrophic just because of the the collapse of the healthcare system, uh, running water. And then there's a particular challenge for Venezuelans in Venezuela, but also in Colombia and in the other parts of the diaspora. And this is the one of those peripherals that I think the international community is starting to pay more and more attention to that it isn't just the crisis of COVID and and those those risks, but it's also the the COVID related things. Most Venezuelans live day to day. They they have enough food for one day and enough cash for three days, so they have to get out to to make their way. One of the big sources of revenue over the past uh, several months has been remittances, and that was up to. $4.5 billion a year. So those have all but dried up because the Venezuelan diaspora that was sending that money back was also day laborers and relying on getting out every day to work. So now as they lose their jobs, that source of income dries up. So it's kind of this mix of, of uh, a very desperate situation in practical terms, independent of COVID. And then if COVID does hit them again, it's going to hit hard because of lack of everything from transportation to um, uh, uh, to water delivery, to uh, to sanitation, and all the rest. It's going to be uh, going to be tough. So the work, the international community is taking it very seriously, looking at trying to increase the the amount of assistance for Venezuela directly related to COVID, but also uh, some kind of a humanitarian truce, as the Secretary General has called for. Again, it's a little bit different than what he had in mind. He mentioned truce of actual conflicts. Well, this is one of those non-shooting conflicts that nonetheless is is doing, is putting a, a people in, in a vulnerable position uh, much as it would from a war. I mean, there's more Venezuelan or almost as many Venezuelan migrants now out of the country as there are from Syria. So it's it's a conflict without shooting, but it certainly is in the same category where there's a need for a humanitarian truce that would then allow for the covid related assistance to flow unimpeded. And then from that, hopefully that could be built and developed into something larger uh, 
such as one of these humanity these uh, political agreements that is now on the table. So uh, on on that uh, idea specifically, I mean, is there a concern that sanctions, U.S. and, and other sanctions against Venezuela right now may heed the provision of humanitarian assistance, kind of like what we're seeing in, in happening with Iran? So again, there's kind of two lines of thought on that. The the official line of, of reasoning is that there's uh, there's ways around sanctions for all humanitarian and medical things that are that are needed, and that the the regime, if it wanted to, it could redirect resources to taking care of all these things, even with sanctions. And then the flip side of that, or the other, the alternative uh, concern is that uh, that that sanctions hit so broadly that they nonetheless leave a a mark on any kind of input to the country, any kind of assistance, and uh, even things like like the limited gas and things like that have an impact on the country's humanitarian uh, situation. So that's kind of the two the two lines of uh, of reasoning about the impact of sanctions, and that's why many are calling for a, a lessening of sanctions or of, of of certain kinds of sanctions to be to be um, to be let up for the time being. Is there sort of a line of thought in the policy community um, in which sort of they see COVID-19 as sort of an opportunity to turn up the screws uh, against Maduro? You know, say, you know, the worst case scenario, you know, happens that COVID gets a foothold in Venezuela and an already crippled health system becomes totally overrun, you know, that that presumably would... Um, reduce whatever support Maduro has and, you know, enable Guaido's, you know, claim to, to power is, is, I mean, is that like a line of thinking you're seeing discussed at all? I think I know everybody that works on Venezuela and the U S government. And I can tell you pretty categorically that no one would think of that. Okay. Fair um, enough. So uh, the, the, what they would think of is that, you know, we're going to, that the U S government is going to stay, the course and not allow Maduro to do the flip side of that, which is to use COVID to reconstitute and, and, and enhance his social control, political control, and then to go after the opposition. And there is a bit of that going on now. Social control has increased quite a bit because of people's now dependence on the government. So I, I would actually say it's kind of the opposite, that if there's anyone taking advantage of the crisis, it would probably be on the other side. Um, finally, you know, what will you be looking towards in the coming weeks or, or months that would suggest to you whether these, this sort of the, the indictments followed by the sort of offer of transitional government followed by the military maneuvers, that sort of the sandwich of, of policy, as you described, is having in, in its intended impact? Are there any indicators or any, um, you know, any inflection points coming that you will be looking towards to suggest to you whether or not that 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 policy may be having an impact? Yeah, I think the main question will be, or the main issue to watch for, is whether there's renewed talks. Uh, and I think those renewed talks are waiting, frankly, for a, a fresh set of eyes, a fresh set of a fresh voice. Um, I think there's an opening now for the UN to do things that it hasn't done before. It's been calling on parties to do X, Y, and Z. But in the in the meantime, a place like Venezuela is waiting for the right interlocutor. There's not really a an interlocutor that can bring all the parties together. And that includes Russia and China, which are 
of course, the regime's uh, prime supporters, the United States, which is the prime supporter of, of Guaido and much of the, and the rest of the hemisphere also on the Guaido side. So there's really a need to bring all that together. There's the UN is the natural party to do that. And uh, there's an opportunity, I think, for the UN to actually step up and do that rather than waiting as they have been prone to do for someone else to do it and then coming in on, on the margins later. So I think there's a there's an opportunity for that. And I think that'll be the, the key indicator if there is somebody that steps up into that space. Uh, if the regime through back channels starts to respond, um, they wouldn't respond directly to this this uh, this framework necessarily. But if they started to reach out to the Guaido interim government and start to look for a way to uh, to find a way through this, that would be that would be of interest. And uh, the church also, of course, the Vatican is another player that uh, that is could be could play that unifying role that is is seen as neutral by both parties, respected by both parties. So there's a couple of organizations in that space that could play that. And I think if you see them uh, start to so, step up, then that would be interesting. And it's interesting about about the UN. I mean, would you recommend that like the Secretary General appoint a special representative for Venezuela, like you know, like he does for say Libya or Syria or any other conflict situation? It, 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 yeah, it's hard for me to see why there wouldn't be such an individual. There is, of course, a country team there that handles the humanitarian stuff, and then Michelle Bachelet, of course, has been involved on human rights. Yeah. So they've got the different components, but there's not really a political. Um, overseer. And that's really, frankly, the the end state that everyone's looking for is someone to manage the bigger picture. So I think it would be certainly something to consider. Um, there could be a good reason why it's it's not in play, but it would it would seem natural with a crisis this important and also this international. It's not a it's not a crisis contained to Venezuela. It now is hitting um, almost a dozen other countries and some of them very hard. And so it's a cross border thing. It's an international thing. And and it involves again two members of the Security Council. It involves Europe in 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 a way as well. So it's a it's it's kind of a classic case that one would think the UN would take a very direct uh, and more active role in. Interesting. Well, I will be looking out for that. Thank you so much for your time, Keith. Sure. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Keith. That was very helpful. I appreciated that conversation. And it's good to, I think, uh, take a bit of a departure from the all COVID all the time. Although, you know, I think one thing that we're seeing is that you're just having COVID layering on top of existing crises, exacerbating it, influencing and impacting it in some profound ways. And that's certainly the case in Venezuela. So so thank you to, uh, to Keith. Oh, and uh, do become a premium subscriber if you are able, want to support the show and unlock those bonus episodes. And of course, uh, do feel free to reach out to me. I do love hearing from you. All right, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.